0: Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Leslie Kamenoff, and we are going to dive into some fun topics. So, hi, Leslie. Thanks for joining.
1: Pleasure, Kino. Um, And uh, I'm just happy to finally be having this conversation. We actually started it uh, when we weren't recording a while ago and started getting some interesting stuff. And I was like, well, well, that's too juicy. Let's just save it for the podcast.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So. I think that I would love to get started in letting everybody know who you are, where you come from, and how you became known as this expert of yoga anatomy in the world.
1: Uh, okay. Well, first of all, anyone that studies human anatomy is going to definitely bristle at being called an expert, because the more you dive into it, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, okay. So that's that's just right off the bat, something I, I would need to say. Um, but how I got into this was through yoga. Uh, the first thing that I ever did consistently in, in my life, uh, in the direction of a career, was was yoga. Up until then, I was just supporting myself with odd uh, jobs, living on my own in the seventies uh, in the East Village of New York. And I took my first yoga class when I was uh, twenty years old uh, at the Shivananda Center in New York City, and got progressively more involved in yoga through Shivananda and through that organization. Um, And uh, over the years, I uh, sort of uh, went on to permanent staff and uh, became a center director and that landed me in Los Angeles, where uh, when I left the Shivananda organization, uh, this would have been 1982 by then, um, I started working in the field of sports medicine, which at the time in LA was a very, very hot Field. There were a lot of things happening, and this is what we were talking to previously that started to get juicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I found myself uh, in Los Angeles at sort of ground zero of the birth of the fitness industry uh, at that time. So Circle. What year are we talking? This
0: is 1982.
1: 1982. Uh, right, and the Summer Olympics were coming to Los Angeles in 1984, so there was all of that attention on LA and athletics and, 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 and just fitness in in general, you know, we didn't have a fitness industry back then, like we have now where working out was really part of what people recognized should be something they just do. Uh, the, the running craze had been going on for a while and, you know, the, the, the weird guys, the bodybuilders were doing weight training, but, you know, they use free weights and, Things that really aren't safe in a large group environment. So right around then, Nautilus got invented, which made all the kinds of machines that you now see in health clubs possible, where someone with very little or no training can just go around figure out how to move the pin around to change the weights and you know work out with weights safely. Um, so that was happening, and then of course Jane Fonda cannot be you cannot overemphasize the uh, tremendous effect she had on the fitness world in general, and and this whole group fitness. Movement, all of that came together both during those years and geographically in the Los Angeles area. And as I said, I sort of found myself at ground zero at the Sports Medicine Institute in West LA, where I was working for a chiropractic orthopedist named Leroy Perry. And uh, just down the road, actually, was Jane Fonda's first uh, studio. Uh, So we got to see the first aerobics injuries at the. Did you take a class? Did you take a class with Jane Fonda? Did I take a class with Jane? No, but one of her head instructors. Was actually developing uh, similar programs for us at the Sports Medicine Institute with a little bit more sort of a therapeutic rehab orientation. Um, and, and that's what you saw getting injected into uh, Jane's workouts uh, almost from the beginning, because the difference between her first uh, VHS tape and her second one was that she herself had developed some back problems for doing her own workout. And she sought help from, from my boss, from Leroy Perry, for her back. And he said, Look, you know, I've Seeing the video and I've seen some of the injuries. Here's some of the things you can do to mitigate the risks when you're doing these these repetitive movements in the workouts. And so, almost from the beginning, there was this idea of um, sort of safety and some ideas about alignment and reducing stress on the joints that that started up in the fitness room. Because the instructors, you know, back then they were just cranking out four or five classes a day, and they're just beating the hell out of their bodies. And so, you know, uh, it, it became a necessary thing almost from the beginning. And this is just a, basically a mirror image 10 years before all of these conversations started happening in the yoga world. Uh, and and so, you know, I was sort of at ground zero there 10 years later as well, which was sort of the interesting thing about my life and my career is that, you know, the, the beginnings of the fitness industry, um, in the uh, early to mid 80s in LA and then the early to mid 90s in New York when all the stuff was happening with ashtanga and jiva mukti and the health clubs wanting to have yoga uh, in on their you know in their facility uh, a lot of the same conversations started happening uh, also along credit lines of cred- accreditation you know there were, there was this explosion of 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 interest in um, aerobics instruction and and no standards at all for, for training a certifying instructor. So, you know, uh, uh, ACE and, um, you know, some of the other entities that evolved as sort of accreditation or national accreditation uh, kinds of organizations for the fitness world um, started to come into play. And then, of course, we started having that conversation in the in around the mid 90s about the um, the standards for yoga teacher trainings. And I was part of that conversation also.
0: Oh, it's to be, you know, are you going to write the history of yoga?
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know. I think an oral history is a more interesting and fun project. And these conversations would be, would be part of it. And that is a project that I've I've thought of doing. I actually did a version of it at the breathing project at my studio in New York. Uh, Once a month, we would invite someone in and we'd have these conversations. So I have some of those recordings. But now with Zoom, you know, we can do it in a more sophisticated way. And I can reach out to people that are sort of more OG than I am. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's people that have been doing this for a while, and a lot of them are still alive. And I'd like to reach yeah. out to them be- before they're not alive. Absolutely. Uh, and that and yeah, that's we, what yeah. yeah I'm and sorry, and that's what got me thinking that. about that was was when Rama Vernon died, right? Rama Joti Vernon passed away last year. Mm. And 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 she was one of the OGs of the OGs. And it's like, wow. If I'm going to do this project, I should I should do it while the, the real the people who are really there at the beginning are still actually mm-hmm. amongst us. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to. No, and yeah, and we, and we also yeah. of
0: course just have to say the his the the beginning of yoga in the United States. So we just have to have mm. that as a you know qualifier, yeah. of course. That, you know, and it was it was more it was sure. more of a friendly joke that I said about you know the history of yoga, and of course in the United States, the history of yoga of course goes back thousands of years within India. So we shouldn't sure. Well, Absolutely. Be absolutely clear about that right so
1: although I the history would... of the yoga the history of the yoga we do doesn't go back quite that many thousands of years as mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know the recent uh, scholarship in that area is is turning up some very interesting things about how the stuff that we were told was super ancient probably isn't quite as super ancient as we thought it was in some regards yeah, the philosophy you know is huh. but the mm-hmm. practices are, are you mm-hmm. know, maybe not mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah. So I'm very interested in, uh, the similarities or the, 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 the that came up when you saw mm. the practices of the growing fitness community, mm. uh, address some of those physical concerns. And then in the yoga community, you said you saw some other physical concerns come up. What mm. were, what were the similarities and what were the differences and how did the yoga community respond? Was it different than the fitness community responded? And, you know, mm. what, what have we learned from all of that, from that that those injuries and the potential paths to healing?
1: Sure. Well, that, that's a good question because uh, that's how we learn by looking at similarities and differences. And in fact, that's how we can even form concepts. So the similarities are sort of what I just mentioned. It was that this is something that, Became wildly popular very quickly in the public imagination, uh, and both industries, fitness and yoga, experienced a period during which the demand for teachers far outstripped the supply. So you you had people jumping into the 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 business of teaching other people body movements uh, that. Um, were fun and enjoyable on the one hand, but were perhaps not as well-informed as they could have been on the other hand. Um, so, uh, and, and a, a key a connection between those two similarities is actually what started happening in yoga in the, in the 90s, is that we experienced this huge demand for teachers in health clubs and so on. Not a lot of supply. So a brilliant businesswoman named Beth Shaw saw that and said, Oh, hang on. You guys already have people on your payrolls who know how to lead group fitness. They're called aerobics teachers. Give them to me for a weekend. And at the end of that weekend, you can have yoga on your schedule because I will teach them to teach a yoga class in a weekend. And that was how yoga fit got born. Right, and it was wow. brilliant. I'm not taking anything at all away from Beth or the brilliance of that recognition of the opportunity that existed in the in the free market, if you will, at that point. Um, so, the difference here, where the yoga conversation perhaps diverges from the the, the group fitness thing, uh, was that when that happened. Uh, In the aerobics yoga world, there wasn't a bunch of people who had been practicing aerobics for their entire lives in a tradition that goes back perhaps thousands of years that said, hang on a minute, wait, (laughs) a weekend isn't enough, right? That was the case in the yoga world um, when some of the senior people who had devoted their lives to practicing and teaching and, and studying yoga saw something like a weekend yoga training. They went. Whoa, you know, I don't know off the top of my head how many hours it should take to train a yoga teacher. I'm pretty damn sure a weekend isn't enough. So let's have a conversation about this. And then that—that's how the ad hoc committee eventually got formed. That—that that, uh, that I participated, in. they came up with these 200 and 500 hour standards, which you know is interesting. Where there was always an argument that that was never that that was never enough, right? And so that's always going to be the argument. Uh, or whether hours are even the way to gauge whether mm-hmm. someone is qualified to teach, but but that's a difference. That, that it, when it happened in yoga, there there it was a long established uh, community of, of practice and study and scholarship who rose up to, in a certain sense and said uh, a, a weekend isn't enough. And, and the additional thing that distinguishes it, I think, from the uh, fitness world, which which has somewhat of an element when you get into the private training thing in health clubs, or whatever, when you have a private trainer who's working with you one-on-one, it's a little similar to this conversation in yoga when we talk about the therapeutic aspects of it. So the the whole evolution of what we could call the yoga therapy uh, world uh, was also part of this conversation when we started having the 200-500-hour 500, 500 discussion because If I could say Beth Shaw was one of the motivating factors, the yoga fit thing, one of the others was that yoga was starting to be used in therapeutic or or medically oriented environments quite a bit back then. The Ornish program was gaining a lot of traction uh, and a a lot of it was uh, mindfulness, yoga, meditation, lifestyle changes and diet, things like that that were very heavily influenced by yoga. In fact, the two people who designed the yoga element of the Ornish program were, were uh, Nishala Devi and um, Yanni Chapman. Um, and so they were coming to us on the committee saying, hey, look, we go into a city where Dean Ornish is, is, is in basically installing the Ornish program in a hospital. And they're asking questions like, okay, who in our community are the yoga teachers that are going to be qualified to come in and administer these these classes in the Ornish program? And there was nothing at that point. There was the yellow pages, right? And and so there, there was this idea that if we didn't come up with, as a community, if we didn't come up with some kind of standards that would let a potential employer know, especially one in, in a medical field, that someone had some kind of qualifications, that these would eventually be imposed on us from the outside, that some regulatory, educational, governmental agency would start to say, oh, yoga teachers are teaching in hospitals. We need to regulate them and control their training and so on. So nobody wanted that. And, and, and so those were a couple of the pressures that uh, created the, the need for these conversations that ended up in with the standards that the, that the Alliance now administers.
0: You were instrumental in creating the Yoga Alliance standards, which sound like... I,
1: I wouldn't say instrumental. I was one voice in a room um, just sort of legislating for more anatomy hours. That was basically <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> although, part- although, although I think I was the first person that did the back of the envelope calculations that ended up with 200 because I, I went into my Shivananda training memory, which is a month long residential thing. And I said, well, how many hours did we actually spend on this and, this and this and this and this? And I sort of just from memory, remembered what my daily schedule is like. And I, I you know did the arithmetic on a piece of paper. And it was like, Oh, this is pretty close to 200 hours. So that was one of the ways we came up with the 200 hours. So that I'll give myself other than that, it was definitely a group effort. So I just want to correct that compression.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I mean, you know, what I mean to bring up by that is that you were there at that time <clears> when these <standards throat> were created. And the reason yes. that I brought that up is because it sounds like from your perspective and the story that you tell, that it has a kind of, you know um even honorable intention and i don't think mm. that the contemporary climate around 200 hour and 300 hour and 500 hour courses is as honorable as you know the intention with which you describe there is so much discussion mm. in the yoga community these days about yoga alliance and the yoga alliance standards not only not being enough but essentially what that organization is in the yoga mm. world today it yep. seems to be you know um uh, there's, quite, there's a lot of questions and critical crit- critical commentary about about that, and it, it's sure. good for me, and I think for many people who are who are listening to actually hear the origin story,
1: you know, from someone <laughs> yeah.
0: there. They're like, okay, so there might have been some problems, but hey, look, this is where it came from, and yeah, we're here, and there's work being done to update them, and and that sort of thing. So I think that's just a very yeah. interesting perspective that I wanted to draw everyone's attention sure. to in, you know, in an age where we are exceedingly critical of everything that you know, we can see could potentially be done better to remember, hey, there, there, there may, there may be an origin story that you're not, you know, you're not entirely aware of. And, you know, if there hadn't have been these standards, I think that, as you mentioned, it probably would have been dramatically more intense and maybe less uh, advantageous to the yoga community had, you know, the federal government in the United States come in and tried to regulate that. Right. And then it
1: right disastrous right yeah. so well it it was lo- most likely not going to be federal but states have been trying to regulate yoga since the beginning and the alliance for whatever else it may do that sucks has been so far very good at the advocates advocacy aspect of their work which is to keep the states out of the business of regulating the training of yoga teachers um And that's a that's a -a whack-a-mole process that's state by state.
0: Yeah, you have to get certified in one state and another and certify, you have to be board certified for this or that in each state. So that's actually a really good
1: positive
0: about having a national organization that's in charge of that's in charge of some sort of standardization.
1: Yes. And the other thing to remember is that there is. Well, there's a few distinctions here. There's a distinction between. Creating the standards and creating in, in, uh, an organization to administer them. I was never in favor of, of the latter. I was definitely in the room where it happened when we came up with the standards, right? Um, uh, you, you can cue the Hamilton soundtrack there if you want. Um, but I, from the beginning, You know, I resigned from the ad hoc committee when it was clear that people wanted to create an an organization to administer the standards. I felt all that was necessary was to publicize these standards and offer them as a template uh, and let people voluntarily adhere to them or not, but be transparent with the public and with the people they're training about what their relationship to these standards are. Uh, So, that said, once the alliance Came in, by the way, the alliance didn't have to come into existence. There was already an organization in existence called Unity and Yoga, with which I was associated back in the day when we were organizing yoga conferences. So Unity and Yoga was a five hundred one c three that basically changed its name to the Yoga Alliance. But it, it it there already was that organization which had been dormant for a number of years up until that point. So once there was an organization called the Yoga Alliance, that was starting to administer and register to these standards, the important thing to remember was that it's always been voluntary. And and that's part of the, the sort of ethical foundation that underlies the Alliance's advocacy work, is that once the government gets involved, it ceases to be a voluntary framework. Now, as much as an employer may want to make the, you know, having the alliance letters after your name, uh, a requirement for employment or even for auditioning for a job. Some health clubs don't even let you audition to teach yoga unless you have an alliance registration, right? So that's, the, the alliance is in control of whether people are going to, in the free market of ideas and employment and so on, take their standard and and make it a condition of employment. But even then, that's the private sector acting. That's not the government. The government, the nature of the government is it uses force behind all of the things that it does. If you, you know, think of it this way. Think of the alliance as a private club, right? And you, if you want to join the club, you pay the membership, you read the rules, you adhere to the rules. If you break the rules, but the worst thing they can do to you is kick you out of the club, right? And then if you refuse to leave the club, then you're trespassing and you're violating the law. Then the government comes in and someone with a gun says, hey, you're trespassing. Get off the grounds." Right. That's 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 the only place that the government has a role. Now, when you break one of the government's rules, OK, um, you know, it's not about getting kicked out of the club. They actually have someone with a gun who's going to come and take you away if you refuse to comply. And that's the big ethical difference between the the free market of ideas and employment and all of that operating in the yoga world and yes when when the free markets involved you're always going to have you know bad actors you're always going to have people that exploit the situation you're always going to have people that take the alliance standard as some kind of a basic race to the bottom of here's the, the 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 cheapest down and dirtiest ways we can give people 200 hours and get past the alliance's standards and just you know sell as many of these as possible without any Kind of quality control. Has that been happening? Sure. But you can't stop that from happening. Um, I would much rather have all of the messiness of the free market involved in this than, than some kind of government edict that uh, makes it a, a non voluntary process. And to my knowledge, the alliance is still, apart from anything else you can say about them, operating from that premise when it comes to this state by state thing of. Um, keeping them from getting involved in the business of uh, regulating yoga teacher trainings. And this was this was a very iffy thing. Back in 2009, it, it could have gone either way because states were, there was concerted, coordinated effort amongst various states to license yoga teacher training programs in a very draconian way that would have put the this, this small mom and pop operations out of business, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, the Alliance- point. Yeah, and the Alliance wasn't doing a good job back then. You know, local mm-hmm. local teachers rose up uh, in various states and organized on a community level to keep it from happening. It happened in New York, uh, it happened in Virginia, it happened in Texas, mm-hmm. where they actually did enact it and then reversed it later on. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, it's the, the Alliance is better now than it was in 2009, I can definitely say that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think they've had some leadership changes that I think are, have made some important positive turns in in direction and some important positive turns in terms of, you know, uh, maybe going back to those roots that you talked about of original intent. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, I don't want to, you know, make our whole conversation be about the yoga Alliance. (laughs) However, I do also need to say that a, 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 something that has been brought up by particularly uh, yoga teachers and students of Indian mm. descent, whether those living in the Indian diaspora or directly within mm. India, have brought up some criticisms of Western uh, Western governing bodies that potentially may exclude traditional lineage-based styles of training. And mm. this is a recent development. I remember Uh, yoga Alliance used to honor and grandfather in uh, people Mm. that had studied lineage based practices. And I don't think that they do that anymore, but that is a, that is an important point and something that I really think always needs to be Mm. part of the conversation is the West's relationship to the origin culture of yoga. And this, you know, that, that, this kind of schism that any, any Western yoga teacher sits with and particularly any Western yoga organization sits with about how are they interacting in ways that can honor the lineage, whether or not the practice looks like it did thousands of years ago or not. The the reality is Uh that if it it weren't for India, none of us would be here today, you know, trying to put our legs behind our heads. So I think I feel like that just (laughs) needs to be, you know, said on some on some level. And there's no, you know, there's no there's no definitive, you know, answer or judgment on that. It's just kind of a reflection point. Um, One thing I would really love to kind of dive in with you about is Hmm. the importance of anatomy and yoga, mm. Um, mm. because this is, well, first of all, it's like your thing. And second, <laughs> I think it's also really important because, so here's something that's kind of come up with me that I've been thinking about is some people learn yoga anatomy and then they treat it like uh, a, a do or don't list. You know, this, yeah. the, the post shall never be this. It shall only be that. And then the anatomy begins to be the new dogma where the dogma yeah. before used to be about, you know, other things. Now mm-hmm. it's like anatomy dogma. And so what, like, what, what, what's the importance of yoga anatomy to the the mm-hmm. student, the teacher, and how can, how can it be non-dogmatic? And, 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 mm-hmm. and what do you think about the people that end up in that, like, you know, pigeonhole of it? She'll, she'll never be like this. And then asana begins to be just this checklist of do's and don'ts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anatomy is just a um, a bargaining chip in a bigger picture uh, of what you bring up because it's it's one it's one aspect of yoga practice that gets used in in a bigger conversation, uh, which actually is philosophical in in origin. Because there's there's this constant battle, I think, in the way people use uh, ideas to rationalize. Uh, a point of view that they sort of already have rather than deconstructing their point of view to see whether it's valid or not in relation to reality. And there's this kind of like two sides, uh, two chasms you can fall into here, which present themselves as a false alternative. And one would be an intrinsicism and the other would be subjectivism, right? So from the yoga anatomy perspective, the intrinsic um, point of view w- is best expressed by uh, ideas like, if you do this alignment exactly that way, you will be safe, right? The knee should be in this position in order for it not to be injured when doing Virabhadrasana. Now, that's a very intrinsic thing, which which basically is saying that this asana has certain intrinsic properties. And if executed properly, it will yield these results. Um, of course, the element that's missing from that conversation is, Who the hell are you talking about? Whose knees are we talking about? Whose verbodrasana are we talking about? How are their bones shaped? How have they developed? Uh, and, And what kind of positioning is gonna create a clear pathway of weight through their bones and their joints so that they are actually in alignment? And that varies from person to person, right? So then you can take this idea that things vary from person to person and go all the way in the other direction and be completely subjectivist about it, meaning, All bets are off. There's no rules. Do whatever the hell you want. Everyone's different. So why even bother? You know, it's just make it up as you go along and do what feels good. And, um, you know, just go on your mat and and have fun. Right. And frankly, I'd rather see people do that than be, you know, whipped with the the alignment stick all the time. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing that's missing from that dynamic that that false alternative between the intrinsicist and the subjectivist point of view is something objective. There is an objective reality to each and every person's body, um, and they can discover that through introspection, through being guided uh, skillfully, and not being misled in either of these directions by the by the cues they're being given. Um, and there is an objective nature to a technique. In other words, yes, Virabhadrasana one or two or whatever has certain shape properties that that you know ask you to arrange your joints and your spine and and, and your breathing, by the way, in certain arrangements uh, for a certain for a certain purpose. And the thing about a technique is that it's useful to have that structure to to say. This asana is this and not that, right? Um, because otherwise, how do you know whether you're doing it or not? How do you know where you are in relation to the asana? Uh, how do you discover something about yourself? How do you discover the obstructions in your system? How do you discover the resistance that you may not have known was there? The whole the whole purpose of using your body in a new way, in an asana, is to to um, unlearn all the ways that you had been using your body that that keep you from doing the asana. It's the same with breathing learning a new way to breathe forces you to unlearn your old way of breathing. So that's what the techniques are for, but it's going to be different for each person, which doesn't mean you throw the rule book out the window. It means you strike a balance between teaching to the technique and along with that process, encouraging a spirit of inquiry in each and every person. And it took me years and years to figure out how to do that in something other than a one-on-one situation, which is what Desikachar <laughs> Char is known for. My teacher was known for the one-on-one therapeutic approach in in yoga how to convey something like that to a a, a room full of people of any size by what you say and what you don't say is something that took me years to figure out because i i couldn't i i lost the ability to teach group practice at some point because i would start teaching and i'd make the mistake of looking at one person and i saw what they were doing with my beautiful sequence and I was like, oh, wait, hold on, wait a minute. And then I'd go over and we'd start working. And then everyone would stop practicing and gather around and watch. And that was kind of fun and interesting, but it was not group practice. It was a clinic. So I just mm-hmm. said, screw it. I'm going to just teach clinic from now on. So it took a while to understand that, that this was a, this is a philosophical issue that expresses mm-hmm. itself uh, with these, these crazy things that yoga teachers end up saying to people or these crazy points of view that completely either leave out context or just say, okay, just do whatever you want and don't, you know, it doesn't matter because everyone's mm-hmm. an individual. Um, and that's the difference, by the way, between being rational and rationalizing. And most people don't know that there is a difference. Most people have a point of view they've come to on reality based on their emotional reaction to reality. And without without bothering to question whether the reaction they're having is is valid or not, they develop a whole system of thought to to justify how they feel about something and that's called rationalizing, but it's not being rational. And so the word rational has gotten a bad rap because of that, because it's in both words, rationalizing and being rational. And most people don't have the ability to understand that distinction.
0: I like that distinction a lot. And I think it could be applied, you know, outside of the yoga world as well.
1: And I think they're <laughs> Oh, you think it like in politics maybe? Yeah. Maybe,
0: just, maybe yeah. just a
1: little <laughs> here or there, you know. <laughs> Yeah. One or two places would smooth things over a bit in our society, where people are willing to be more rational. Yeah,
0: yeah. What's? Could you give an example? And this might be a hard question of uh, a way that you would lead a class in the way that you just described, like some terminology, uh, and you okay. could even, say, you know, something along those lines of of just to inspire people to get the feeling of what that what that space might be like.
1: Oh, sure, that's easy because that's how I teach. That's not hard. Uh, well, they, the underlying methodology is very simple to express. It's um, try this. Now try that. Now see what you notice. Right? It's so like we're going to do a thing. Okay. And then we're going to do the same thing with a little difference, whether it's how you pay attention to the weight in your feet or how you pay attention to the direction your breath is moving. Or whatever it is. But it's a, it's a little bit of a difference between the first thing and the second thing. And then there's that contrast that you're developing, which is the svadhyaya, the introspective element mm-hmm. of it. Like, what do you notice? And the, the, the fun thing is, when you do this in a group of people and you can interact with them enough, you'll see that everyone notices something different. You know, and it, it can be it can be like the complete opposite. Like, I felt more grounded. In my feet when I was breathing this way. And the next person will say, Well, that's weird because I felt exactly the opposite. I felt less grounded when I was doing that breathing technique. It's like, hmm, isn't that interesting? You know, which which of course, you know, leads you to this insight that you, you know, you you can't predict what people are going to feel or experience. And, And that's one of the main things not to say when you're teaching is telling people what they should be feeling or telling them what the end result is supposed to be, you know? Um, so as an example, uh, you know, when, let's say I have someone taking a stance, uh, for, okay, you're coming from samastiti, uh, and, and stepping forward into a warrior one stance. Right. What's the difference between what you experience if, you, if you're swinging that front leg into that stance, thinking that your leg starts at your hip joint, okay? Focus on your hip joint when you take that step and see what you notice about what you're feeling when you're arriving there. Uh, and in other words, how grounded do you feel in the three points of your foot when you've stepped that way, right? Because we'll have a baseline of what we're using to generate feedback. After having acquainted people with the points in their feet, I would do this. And then, okay, now step back. Now imagine that your leg doesn't start at your hip joint, that actually your pelvic half is part of your leg. So this motion actually is originating in your SI joint, that, that in fact your sitting bone is coming forward and taking your leg with it. What do you experience when you step forward using that sort of focus? And how well-rounded do you feel in the points of your feet when you do that? Now step back. Now Remember that muscularly, your leg actually starts at the top of your lumbar spine because your psoas muscle is way up there. So imagine your crotch is way up at the top of your lumbar spine. And so you're from that psoas crotch, you're swinging your leg forward into warrior one now with that sort of internal landscape as your focus. And what do you notice in your feet at that point, right? And again, some people will find that they were much more grounded when they focused on their hip joint as the origin of the movement, some for the SI joint, and some for the psoas. And it's like, cool. There's no right or wrong to it. I'm not going to say, oh, when you swing your leg from your psoas, you're going to be much more grounded. Why would I say that? It, It goes completely against the evidence of what actually gets generated if you give people the space to inquire about what their actual experience is rather than overriding it with some kind of expectation of what they think they should mm-hmm. be doing.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting because, you know, in Ashtanga, sometimes as a teacher, I get questions like, this teacher told me to do this. Is that right or wrong?
1: This teacher oh, I love told- those questions that start that way. I was taught, <laughs> I have learned, so-and-so said, I have heard, I have read, in fact, how about the ones where they heard something you said that you didn't say? that gets <laughs> said, said back last
0: time I was in class that I should X, y, and yeah, Z. Right. That's still true. Yeah, yeah
1: but <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's
0: just well in the, in the Ashtanga method, it's there there's definitely it has a lot of this question of, you know, precision and people care about, you know, the the what what they believe is the method and then they can get very 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 caught in these little dogmatic uh-huh. moments. Um, of sure. should it be this way or that way, this way or that way, this way or that way. And so to bring up this idea of, of self-inquisitiveness
1: yeah, as yeah.
0: A to increase the student's agency is something that I believe is as a methodology Ashtanga is going through right now. So my answer is often, well, yeah. I don't know. How do you feel when you do that?
1: Is exactly. that? Working exactly. do,
0: or do you need yeah. to explore something else? And they're like, I just want to do what's the correct method. And, and sure. then it's like,
1: yeah, okay, they, well, want the intrinsic, they want the intrinsic answer where they just want the rules to follow so that if they just follow the rules, they'll get the result without bothering to inquire. And all of that stuff about Ashtanga, by the way, about what people believe the system is or, or should be or, you know, the alignment or whatever. How many words that actually came out of Atabi Joyce's mouth had anything to do with alignment? And in what language were they? Yeah, you know, exactly. His, his yeah. English was pretty basic. Yeah, And unless you're a Richard Freeman or or an Eddie or someone who can converse with him in Sanskrit or Canada or whatever it is that he can speak in, I don't know where they got this stuff from.
0: He was never really interested in alignment as far as my practice time with him. You know, and so like the closest thing that would happen would be, you know, hands up, hands down, look at here, look there, you know, know, up, down. It was really basic movements, but it was really off. What Patabi Joyce would do is he would physically assist you and um, put your head in the position he wanted it in, or put your foot in the position he wanted it in. Like I, I remember, um, I had learned in some, you know, Western anatomical kind of correctness that my head should be in a particular place in Warrior yeah. One. Actually, and Patabi Joyce kept on saying, "Look up, look up," and I was like, I'm, "I can look up from here." And he just walked by and pulled my ponytail because <laughs> he wanted right, in my yeah. head.
1: That well, he didn't want your of- he didn't want your eyeballs to look up. He wanted your head to look up to change your neck position.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so that's,
1: that's the drishti for that one. Yeah,
0: it's a very, it's a very interesting, right? And yeah. then and then and then the other interesting thing about Patabi Joyce is you'd never do the same thing
1: to 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 to. to to two people,
0: you know, so he did that to me, but then the person next to me had the same head position as me and he didn't touch that person. And so that was also this idea of meeting the student where they are. So I I agree with you about these rules in the Ashtanga method is that they're not, they're not the method and people get confused. So some of the students that come to me or or to Tim and practice and ask us that they often, hopefully we hope they leave with the sense of inquisitiveness,
1: you know, inquisitiveness is what it's all about. I mean, (laughs) Look, it's no better in the Ayengar community, where, where you had a teacher who spoke endlessly about alignment, you know, uh, in in you know much better English, because he was always changing what he was saying. You know, people would, <laughs> would constantly come back from Pune, and it's like now they have the new dogma because now this is what he's saying, which is different to what he said last year. So it, it it you know whether someone can speak good English or not, I don't think has anything to do with it. But it, it you know it, in particular with the Shtanga, because Patavi Joy had mm. very basic English. Uh, all of this sophisticated stuff that people say is the method is, you know, it may be great and it may be wonderful, but uh, you know, unless unless they had a translator there who, who who somehow got him to come out with all this technical information in a language with which he had some facility, I don't know where it came from.
0: He was not technical even in even in Kannada even in Sanskrit. So I've had friends of mine that've spoken with him in, in, and yeah. in, in depth. You know, and uh, he this is this is not his thing. He wanted he wanted, as you mentioned, yeah. to leave students the space to find out how it could work for them. So yeah. this was this was something that you know, it, it, no matter what language you question, but Tavi Joyce he's about too much technique and too much this and should it be there or there or there or there? You know, he would he would answer. You know, why are you thinking? You know, too much yeah. thinking. Just practice. No matter yeah. what language, right? So for him, it right. was this space. So, along also lines- for him
1: as a Sanskrit scholar, yoga wasn't exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's, exactly. My impression of the guy is that he was just absolutely tickled that he was making all this money from these Westerners <laughs> coming and just wanting to exercise in his house because he's a Sanskrit <laughs> scholar. You know, <laughs> and, like I remember it, it back in like I guess this was ninety three at Jiva Mukti when he came to visit, uh, and you know, uh, Eddie and Sharon and David brought him in and he was doing these classes and just packing the place. And um my my um my partner at the time, uh Uma McNeil, uh was was the fourth person on that original trip when they went to India to meet batavi Joyce. It was Sharon and David and Eddie and Uma. Uh, He's he saw Uma, he hadn't seen her for a couple of years. He was like, oh Uma Maheshwari you you come my source six months you be perfect. She said perfect Guruji. you mean moksha? He just laughed and laughed. Exercise. Yeah.
0: So to give people context, who are you talking <laughs> about when you say Sharon and Dave? Sharon.
1: Sharon, Dave? Sharon Gannon, David Life, Eddie Stern, and uh, okay. the fourth person who people don't talk about because she what never became really famous was Uma McNeil. Uh, Elizabeth McNeil. They everyone nicknamed her Uma. And they were on that original trip uh, over the 9192. Uh, beginning of 92 um, trip where they all kind of met in Mysore and uh, started working with Batabi Joyce and then brought that back to New York and I, I mark that as as really one of the um, key beginnings at least from the west coast point sorry the east coast point of view uh, of uh, when yoga just started shooting in stratosphere because when people started re- realizing they could get a workout and sweat and really work hard physically and be doing this spiritual practice, it deeply influenced what they were teaching at Mukti, which was already a very popular place to come and do yoga. But uh, that's and and that led to the health clubs wanting to have this kind of athletic yoga uh, more and more uh, as an offering to their to their members. And of course, the the, the corresponding activity on the West Coast. Was with Chuck and Mati at Yoga Works and um, with Tim uh, in Encinitas. And it had been long established in Encinitas with him, you know, long before this and in Hawaii with David Williams and all those people. But uh, the sort of uh, Jiva Mukti on the East Coast and Yoga Works on the West Coast, you know, sponsoring Batabi Joyce and bringing him over and getting all of this energy, that that's, we're still, coasting on the energy that was created during those years when all of this excitement started happening in 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 yoga because it became this athletic thing that just fit very very nicely into the um the, the uh sort of conversation in the fitness industry uh, in the health clubs and so on so you know the, the boom, we're 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 past the boom now obviously with covid and all that but it was it was already sort of it had already peaked even before quarantine i think um, and so now we're seeing a whole other thing happening and who knows how it's going <laughs> to, how it's going to end up, you know, you're, you're just back on the road after a year and a half and I'm about to go out myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's a very different landscape that we're encountering now.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, I, yeah, I'm so first I think we should, uh, like, I just say, I'm super grateful to all those who've come before and to be able to mm-hmm. like. And then the the second kind of question is, along all of these lines of practice and this intersection between the fitness world that you were Mm. present for in in those nascent stages, the the yoga world in its nascent stages, and in our current climate around yoga, what is Mm. one of the most common um, misunderstandings, misconceptions about yoga anatomy? that you've come into contact with or just some place in the body that people just that you just see over and over again like people just get it wrong they don't understand it over and over and over again
1: um well because i'm somewhat obsessed with breathing i think i'm gonna have to go there right away Uh uh because um well first of all let me say that whatever kind of instruction you get however anatomically accurate or inaccurate or however strange the technique is that you're being taught. If it's the very first thing that a person is being taught in their lives around this topic of conscious breathing, it's gonna transform their lives permanently and hopefully for the better. Um, That's the given. The given is that when you take somebody that has never paid attention to how they're breathing or where they're breathing or what muscles they're breathing with, And you interrupt that uh, habitual way we have of relating to our breath with something conscious, with something intentional, with a technique. And again, it doesn't matter how how stupid the languages are using to teach it or, or describe the anatomy. And there's a lot of that. It doesn't matter because breathing is so powerful that when you start changing your habits around it, it changes your life. It changes the way your consciousness interacts with your body. So A lot of the benefits that people say are related to the technique that they're teaching have nothing to do with the technique. That has to do with that's the thing they taught someone the first time that person learned conscious breathing, and that will transform their lives. So that said, the thing that's most frequently taught in that context is this belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing thing, right? Um, And that's a technique. Uh, It's a way of manipulating your musculature so that as your diaphragm contracts, and I even hesitate to use the word contract in this context because it's a tricky word. Contract describes what a muscle does, but it also describes something getting smaller. And the fact is that when the muscle of your diaphragm contracts, it makes the space in your chest bigger. And that's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around, is it something Contracting is making something bigger, right? So when the diaphragm acts muscularly in a certain way, under certain conditions, your belly will bulge. And that's definitely indication that your diaphragm is doing something. And that's often called diaphragmatic breathing. It's called yogic breathing. It's called proper breathing uh, or correct breathing. Uh, And those are the the things, the, the myths that I, find myself most often debunking around anatomy and yoga and, and, and breathing, because the fact is that the diaphragm doesn't just move the belly. It moves the rib cage in all three dimensions. Um, and belly breathing is a pattern of breath. And if it's different enough from what the person was doing before, it's absolutely going to change their lives. And I have found people who get stuck in belly breathing patterns because they've been taught to do that. They've learned to do that. They've been told that that's the correct or proper or yogic way to breathe. And so that becomes their pattern that they are now stuck in. And that creates problems. So the problem isn't whether you're breathing in your chest or your belly. The problem is whether you're stuck in your chest or your belly or somewhere or just stuck in general. So the whole point of learning a new way to breathe is to get unstuck. Um, And so that usually is the opening volley in a whole lot of sort of... um, Reimagining of the the dogma around breathing and anatomy that people have just accepted for years and years and years uh, in these training programs and the way they teach students and the way teachers are taught to teach breathing. So, yeah, misconceptions about the diaphragm is probably at the top of my list of, of things that I work uh, quite a bit in the workshops to uh, to to better inform people, shall we say?
0: Yeah. Mm. What a foundational teaching and so important. And I've definitely come in contact with that numerous times as well, less in the Ashtanga world, but more in, you know, uh, hmm. other styles of yoga. I probably Ashtanga has its own misconception. Is there a is there a oh, frequent yeah. Ashtanga misconception?
1: <laughs> well, sure, that Mula Banda is good to be doing all the time. <laughs> How's that one? That was rampant. In the, not so much these days. I mean, that's been pretty much... Um, you know, deconstructed. But in the early days, and I, you know, I, I'm the early. I was there when this stuff came back from India, and I started hearing people talk about how, you know, you should be holding mula Bandha all the time. And I'm like, really? Like, how about when you're pooping? How about when downward ardha is something that has to happen, right? How about when a baby's getting born? I can't tell you how many stories I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard similar stories of of women who, in all good faith, have been practicing what they were taught in ashtanga and doing very effective. Banda work, um, but didn't work hard enough at figuring out how to release their mula Banda, right? And then you go into a process like childbirth and delivery, and that's a little bit late to discover that you're having a hard time letting go of all of that tension in your pelvic floor, um, because that's exactly the opposite of what a baby needs in order to get born, naturally at least. Uh, and I, I've heard these stories uh quite a bit coming out of the Ashtanga community of as someone who thought that their advanced yoga practice of ishtanga which involves the breathing and the bandhas would set them up well for natural childbirth when in fact all of the connective tissue is now org- organized itself around that that upward lift of that mula Bandha in the pelvic floor and it's just it has a very hard time letting go and opening in the other direction um, have you heard those stories Uh,
0: In relation to pregnancy and birthing, no. But I have heard, um, you know, uh, many different experiences of birthing that numerous students have shared with me, both wonderfully easy and wonderfully difficult. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, I've I've heard more people uh, talk to me about uh, the notion that they didn't know they needed to uh, release the pelvic floor. They just thought they only needed to squeeze it. And that yep. it was a more recent discovery that they needed to figure out how to kind of come to point 0.0 before yes. they could actually get activation. So it was more, yep. I feel like I have more people telling me that they, that they have, that they have a permit, like almost like a permanent tension down there that yes. they came had even before the yoga practice. And mm-hmm. that they felt like they couldn't properly activate it because that tension was there and they were just trying so hard to keep it activated. They didn't know what it meant to release. And then they also found out that that happened not only with bundas but also with the other muscles in their body. Because if it was yep. happening in the pelvic floor, then they're also not releasing their other muscles. So it's sure. this big, you know, and it's actually so far from my relationship with my body and my subjective experience mm-hmm. with the practice. Because I just, I'm not someone that ever had uh, that problem with any muscle. <laughs> I have the opposite problem. You know, I'm not <clears throat> hypotonic, I'm hypotonic. So yes. I have the opposite scenario where yes. like very difficult for me to activate. So, um, uh, so the idea that, uh, that, that this was, that this was something that was definitely eye-opening for me when students would speak to me about it. And then, sure. you know, so, so I, I definitely feel like Banda is a big thing in the Ashtanga world and then misconceptions about it, that we should squeeze it all the time, that there's no release ever, that right. there are t- it should be released there's also like you know funny stories about people having constipation because they squeeze their bandhas so much they're afraid to let them go because they're trying
1: to right. which goes against the shanga thing i was hearing early in the early days that if you are practicing properly you have a perfectly formed ayurvedically shaped poop that will float uh and you know (laughs) the problem is it can't actually get out if you're doing the bandhas all the time (laughs) right Right. So uh, there's a lot of weird stuff that got circulated in the early days. But uh, by the way, one. it's, it's I,
0: not I missed helped. I the perfectly shaped Ayurvedic.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, I know who you could talk to about that. Anyway, um, but also <laughs> the childbirth educators don't help by being obsessed with Kegels because they are mm-hmm. so concerned about prolapse after childbirth. That the strength of the pelvic floor is so important to them. But you said something very important before is that you have to be able to get to a point zero or a neutral place in, in in the state of your nervous system and your musculature and your diaphragms to know what an actual engagement feels like rather than just layering tension on top of tension that you don't know how to let go. So I don't actually teach bandhas as a technique. I teach people to pay attention to what they're doing with their bodies and with their breath as they move and walk and talk. And just to, to develop the awareness, to, to the, the proprioceptive and interoceptive awareness to know whether you're in a state of tension or not. Um, because you, you, if you can't relax a muscle effectively, there's no way to engage it in a useful, integrated way in, in the first place. And I, I think that a lot of people enter into that bonded conversation with a lot of tension in their system that they're not aware of. And uh, they can actually exacerbate it in in some very not useful ways by just trying to follow these cues all the time. Uh, so yeah, it's a, uh, it, you know, when it boils down to it, I, I, I shy away from a lot of anatomy and a lot of that sort of stuff when I'm teaching, and use my language more to promote this interoceptive um, kind of uh, awareness, this this uh, self-reflective swadhyaya. Uh, and if I do teach, I like to use imagery. That's this, is, I was inspired a lot by Richard Freeman in the way he teaches this stuff, because there's an example of someone who's very anatomically informed, uh, very experienced in this practice and teaching and, um, prefers to speak in, in metaphor and imagery mostly when he's, when he's communicating these, these things and, and, and not necessarily drawing on, you know, the, the, the anatomical, uh, details or minutia of what we're trying to do um I, the, <laughs> the last time i was practicing with richard was at estes park at a yoga journal conference at 8,500 feet and i had not yet fully acclimatized and i went in and tried i actually tried to do all the breathing stuff he was teaching and i actually severely kicked my own ass it was really embarrassing to be in richard's class just gasping there and he of course he has such a great sense of humor he didn't care he was just laughing it was funny anyway yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i I agree with you about richard's imagery it's a it's a magical be in and um you can really feel that that's very much his own and a part of his own discovery and i yeah it's a absolutely inspiring to be in his space
1: it it, it is and it's it's sort of i guess it's the way everyone speaks on the planet where he comes from yeah (laughs)
0: Maybe one day we'll go visit that planet.
1: <laughs> I would love to visit Planet Richard. I know exactly <laughs> where he's from because I, I have a strong suspicion it's not actually from here. <laughs> yeah. I say that in the most loving way possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is and truly I- interplanetary. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you would take that as a compliment. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what can people experience in your class? You know, uh, what it, what happens when they come to, you know, an immersion, uh, like one that's coming up? Uh, what, what can students expect when they walk in the door?
1: Um, well, uh, to be basically presented with this environment I've been talking about where um, you're invited to have a lot of agency in the process to engage in self-inquiry uh, to, um, have, uh, options about what you're doing, uh, to learn from an anatomical point of view, what, uh, an actual definition of alignment could be, uh, as a definition, but actually how it relates to your body in particular, finding pathways of weight through your bones, through your joints, um, uh, I, I teach technique, for sure, uh, but when I'm teaching, I make it very clear that it's in relation to inquiry uh, and that those two elements need to be balanced. That's sort of the tira and suka of teaching, I believe. The, the, the form, the structure, the, the tira, if you will, the stable element is the technique that you're teaching. It gives a framework for the exploration. But the space to, to experience that technique uh, in your own way, in your unique body, uh, is the sukha, the good space. So um, I try to adhere to those uh, yogic principles in in the the, the way I teach and uh, in the conversation about the way I teach. Because a lot of a lot of the people that end up in my workshops are other teachers, you know. That has been my audience uh, for for quite a while now, and so there, there's sort of this meta element to. Uh, what happens when we practice together is that, you know, I'm 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 teaching the practice, but I'm teaching about how I'm teaching the practice, so that the, the people that um, do teach can kind of reflect on um, how they could bring some of this to to what they do with their students. So the conversation happens on a lot of levels.
0: Exciting! I think that the students who are going to join you soon are in for a big treat.
1: I'm going to be in for a big treat just to be in a room full of live students for <laughs> for once, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's been a while. It's definitely been a while. Uh, so you, you've you already been in, in live workshops at this point, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, what was my, it like coming I... back to it? Well, Miami Florida has kind of been open so you know yeah. where the where the lawless mm-hmm. land the last stance of uh, <laughs> you know, uh, some particular segments of people uh, yeah. and um, you know and so Florida has been open for a good while but uh, there are two things that kind of that kind of speak to what you were saying is that uh, after that first lockdown where the whole world really went into the complete lockdown uh, yeah. then uh, I remember my very my very first uh in-person class and it wasn't in miami it was it was actually traveling uh because Uh europe had kind of a better job at uh, actually instilling the the lockdown rules and Mm -hmm. and coming out of uh, like a brief respite during the pandemic last year so when i came to europe last summer in this little special like travel window i had all these special entry permissions from each the country that I was in and all this paperwork. Um, and I did, a I did a 10 day quarantine last year. And when I started teaching in person, there was this magical feeling of mm. almost, you know, just, it was, it was almost, you know, it was ineffable. It was it, there weren't really words to describe, but it was, it mm. wasn't just this, this, wow, this appreciation. And it was almost like stepping into a space that was neither, neither present past nor future, because there were these elements of the past of something that I had known, but I hadn't experienced in a long time, but didn't mm. yet feel my present and yet weren't exactly the future. So it mm. was this very weird kind of otherworldly space of which felt almost like a bubble of a potential and possibility. And it made every interaction feel so precious
1: mm. and yeah. Yeah.
0: meaningful. Um, and I felt this this um, just this immense reverence for the space of a physically, a physical present in real life yoga practice. And, and, and I still feel that to this day, you know, I've been, now I've been in Europe for a few weeks, almost a month, um, maybe yeah. a month. And, and again, I really just feel this, just this magical space of presence. Um, and I feel that this has been something that, 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 that maybe the pandemic has restored, not that sure. i had taken it for granted before, but it has definitely shined a light on it to an extent that, um, you know, maybe it was just part of the everyday of okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to teach, and here's this group of students. But now there is this 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 immense space of of, of reverence and sacredness of and specialness uh, with the notion that it, that that it is ephemeral. You know, it, it was it was something that was there and then it was gone, and then it's here now, and we don't know if it will be gone again. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 there's a that there's just that there's so much there, and so so we're looking forward to having you uh, yeah. come down. To, to Florida and, and teach in person and also maybe start to do some additional, you know, transatlantic right. traveling maybe in your future as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're, we're right behind you. You know, we're, um, we're headed overseas. And uh, you, you said my thoughts exactly is that if there was any part of me that took any of this for granted in the past, that's gone. Um, mm-hmm. Because of uh, how precious it is now to uh, for what everyone has to go through to come together in a space with each other. Um, and there was a very good description you gave of this, this idea that when yoga is really kind of resonating with us, uh, it's in this liminal space. Um, it, it's, I think yoga has always occupied the borderlands between the established order in whatever era it was being practiced or taught. And that goes all the way back to the the forest dwellers who basically, you know, said, screw you to Vedic society and went off and figured out some stuff. And, you know, and then then the Upanishads got, that happened and they got tacked on to Vedanta. You know, it's always been, we have to go off and figure some stuff out apart from this cultural conversation that's going on. And then the culture absorbs it. And then it's like, oh, shit, that's no good anymore. And then we have to just go figure some other stuff out. And, you know, uh, I, I think we've all been figuring stuff out for the last year and a half. And I know that's true for me. And uh, this idea of renewing my, my own uh, commitment to, to what I do and the fact that the people that are willing to come together and do it with me, have to really be committed to it. You know, we have to overcome Mm -hmm. all sorts of obstacles, whether they're governmental or or fear-based or health-based. You know, I I had my own COVID experience last year where I had to deal with my own health because I had it. You know, had to really fall back on all of my breath practice to keep myself out of the hospital. Wow. uh, with, With the breathing challenges that presented. And it was very clear to me that someone that, had the same symptoms I had that didn't have that background in the breathing, would very easily have gotten into a very bad situation very quickly, ended up in a hospital, ended up intubated and could possibly have perished. And I was so grateful at that point for all of my training and experience that uh, allowed me to sort of recalibrate how I was relating to my breathing so I could stay safer and stay healthier. But there was a long tail to it for me. It affected my heart. You know, uh, had to have all this other stuff. I, d- in fact, I'm just uh, a week and a half off of a heart procedure. I had a an ablation to get my heart rhythm back in order, which wow. uh, was something that was made, um, you know, sort of uh, exacerbated by this whole COVID thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But I had oh to God. schedule it before all the travel. You know, wow. Last thing I want. Last thing I want when I'm traveling and teaching is to like go into AFib and have a problem. So, you know, that we've got, got all the decks it. cleared. What's that? Yes.
0: But that would be highly problematic.
1: It was. It's actually happened. It's actually happened, but I came out of it quickly enough so that no one actually noticed. Uh, I was teaching in Switzerland and it happened once. And um, it affected a little bit of how I could demonstrate in the morning session, but I had Lydia demonstrate instead. And then it was fine and no one noticed. Uh, but the, the problem with after COVID was that when I would go into AFib, I would I couldn't get out of it on my own. And and then wow. that's when you need attention where they put you in the hospital and shock you back into sinus rhythm and that's no fun.
0: So wow, so this new pr- the procedure you did should make that stable.
1: Uh, my heart is beating like a metronome now, so I'm I'm good to go. I'm good to go.
0: Good. Well, I'm happy to hear that, <laughs> and I'm happy to hear that you, have, you that you did recover from COVID and that you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Neither Tim nor I uh, contracted the COVID, but we did get vaccinated as soon as we were eligible.
1: Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I just so wanted even to get out of my uh, life again. Yeah.
0: yeah. Even though you had the COVID, you still recommended to take the
1: vaccine. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I, you know, because I have a private practice also, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, body work and all of that. And I had worked mm-hmm. on people's bodies for over a year. And mm-hmm. uh, that, was, that was part of it. That was part of uh, them feeling safe coming in. Um, Absolutely, and, and getting the work done. So it was it, when I got that second, when I got the first shot, but particularly the second shot, it was like it felt like a big existential exhale. It was like, okay, this is turning a page, and this is sort of getting back to some semblance of yeah. what my life was like, you know, a year yeah. ago. Yeah,
0: I, and in all of the studies that I've read, they say that someone such as yourself, who both contracted COVID and also has had the vaccine. You are in mm. the ideal uh, immunological position because you have been exposed to the virus mm. in in different in in, the, in these different forms, yeah. so that that you are in the your the, your immune system is the ideal one. Whereas the people who have either just just tested positive mm. and covered or just gotten the vaccine, that they're they're not as in an ideal situation as you are. So I hope you feel very safe while you're traveling, and I hope that
1: that field yeah.
0: surrounds you as you come to Miami and teach and, and cross overseas <laughs> and teach. And, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it doesn't mean I'm going to be reckless. We're still going to take all the precautions and all that, but, uh, yeah. And who knows what variants are going to come up to mm-hmm. nature is very mm-hmm. clever and viruses in particular, are you know, this is going to be with us a long time. It's not like the vaccines turned the switch off on the whole mm-hmm. COVID thing. It's, uh, it's, it's an ongoing thing, but we have to, we have to live our lives. We have to do our best to mm-hmm. do what we do and, um, go where we need to go. And, uh, that's what's coming up for me starting in a couple of weeks. We're going to be in Texas first and then Florida. So we got the double uh-huh. uh, op- open state whammy coming at Ooh. us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
0: Texas, Florida, yeah. and the UK.
1: Texas, Florida, and the UK. That's uh, Oh, and in between, we're going to be in Virginia um, at uh, uh, a studio down down there. So, yeah, we're moving around, moving around.
0: You can click and find all this info on your website, right?
1: Yes, Yoga Anatomy. Yogaanatomy.org is my personal website. It's where all the other stuff goes through. So yeah, the online courses and the schedule and the blog and all that stuff is there. Thank you for letting me plug it.
0: Of course. Leslie, thank you so much for this time. It's been my pleasure, my honor to share this time with you. I hope everybody who's listening has been able to integrate some of the kernel's wisdom that you have shared with us and that they're inspired to come and practice with you and see you in person
1: yeah great and I hope to actually see you in person at some point be in the same place yes. at the same time because when I'm in Florida you're going to be still traveling right so
0: um, uh, I think so but maybe we'll overlap here and there let's see if
1: uh, we'll figure it out we'll figure it out <laughs> we will <laughs> okay <laughs> take good care of yourself over there
0: You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes, and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime.